season number two, episode number 10, One Golden Moment Podcast, Justice De Los Santos as always, and unfortunately today it's only going to be me recording, uh, everybody else uh, is off busy doing other things because of the fact that it's summer, I'm not trying to call them slackers, that's just the, the nature of summer, and especially when it's difficult to get everybody in the same location because now that it's vacate now that it's summer break everybody's just kind of out and about especially considering uh, all three of them graduated lucy max and joey but you know it's all good and hopefully we'll be able to get everybody else in the same location at some point in time during the summer especially considering we are going to be talking about playoffs uh just a little bit going forward to what the what the format of the podcast is going to be um moving forward at least in, at, as far as the postseason is concerned, is at the conclusion of every game, me and whoever else is available on a particular day are just going to hop on a mic, give our 15-minute, you know, very quickly, our reactions of the game, and sort of go about it like that. You know, it's going to be a little different than what we have going on here where we'll typically, you know, absorb a three-game series, have some time to reflect on it. This one's just going to be like immediately after the game, or at least as far as I'm concerned, immediately after publishing the recap and doing all that needs to be done in regards to that. Hopping on the mic, giving my my quick 15 minutes, or depending on how the game goes, however long that may take, throwing that up. And in addition, we may still, you know, it's, it's difficult to really project what the schedule would be just because how we record is really going to be based on what happens with the with the postseason because you know we're sort of at the mercy of how far they go i know that we'll definitely talk about uh, the upcoming mlb draft which is on monday and you know andrew vaughn's a projected top five pick but there's some other players potentially in the mix Corey lee jared horn cameron eden among others so similar to basketball we're kind of going to just sort of ride this train until we run out of content to cover and you know that it really all just depends on when you know when the season ends so to to sort of bring it back around to the actual baseball now uh, I just for this podcast I just want to very 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 briefly discuss Cal's two-game sweep of Washington because you know if this were any other weekend we would sort of delve into that more holistically especially considering that there was, uh, especially with get that game two and how there's a lot of experimentation with rotation, uh, Horn wasn't the go-to starter. Cal instead went really by committee in that game. That would be something that, you know, especially me and Joey, because we talked about that on the last podcast, that would be something that we would have loved to really delve into. But rather to focus just on uh, the postseason, you know, Cal qualifying for the NCAA tournament for the first time since 2015, and they'll be playing in the Fayetteville Regional, along with Arkansas, number seven Arkansas, the host school, uh, Central Connecticut, and uh, TCU. They'll actually be playing TCU in a rematch of the infamous Cheez-It Bowl. We'll get to that in a second. In addition, Cal moved into the top 25. They are now the they are now ranked uh, 25th. And then we'll also get into you know the end of season awards. Uh, who made the All Conference team? And who got honorable mentions, and I got a little, I have some thoughts in regards to the matter, especially as it pertains to one player, but beginning with uh, the Washington series, sort of just to breeze through this one, in the first game, Cal defeats Washington 
18-8, and for the second time in three weeks, Cal absolutely decimates an opponent with their bats. They tied the season high of 18 points. They eclipsed the previous season high of 24 points. And there's way too many crazy stat lines to really single one out. So I think the best way is to just really run through them. Uh, Cameron Eden, 5 for 6. Uh, Quentin Selma, 2 for 6, 1 home run and 3 RBI. Andrew Vaughn, 2 for 2. Not too many hits, but that's because he got walked 5 times. And with those 5 walks, Vaughn actually set the new single season record for walks in a season by a Cal player. Uh, Corey Lee goes 3 for 6 with 4 RBI, all of which came via a grand slam. Max Flower, 3 for 7, 3 RBI. Darren Baker, 2 for 7, 1 RBI. Grant Holman, 2 for 5, 1 RBI, and a walk. And Sam Starnborough did get the start in this game. I believe his final stat line was 5 and a third innings pitched. I believe 5 earned runs, so it wasn't the greatest outing in the world for him. I know he especially had you know, a rough outing really early in that game. And you know, ever since he's been... You know, he, it's been sort of a mixed bag for him in regards to uh, making the actual starts. And I don't think that really has to do with him making the actual starts as much as as much to do with his, you know, just sort of hitting the freshman wall, so to say. And he's one of those pitchers who I'm interested to see how he gets used in the upcoming uh, regionals. But more on that in a second. So the game, the second game of the Cal Washington series, and Similar to the Arizona State series, the last game, uh, Cal defeats Washington four to three, and you know as I previously mentioned, this was a very interesting game from a strategy perspective. You would think that since you know this is the second game of the series, New would be inclined to go with Horn, who you know enter if he was to pitch in that game, he would have entered it with a one point eight two ERA hotter than the surface of the sun. He had just come off a complete game against Arizona State, one of the best hitting teams in the country. But that's not the case. Instead, he decides to go by committee. He doesn't even go with Sabori, which, side note, uh, New actually went with Sabori for, you know, a little stint in game one. And I think considering the third game got canceled and now they're going to be playing on Friday, I think it was good to really get him uh, that work. But instead, New goes by committee in this game, and making appearances on the mound were Grant Holman, Nick Proctor, Ian Villers, Mitchell Scott, Jack Volger, and Rogelio Reyes. And considering the very well-documented struggles of this bullpen, I would say the relievers did a really excellent job of really holding on the fourth. They only allow those three runs, and I believe only two of them were earned. Holman, whose last appearance prior to this one was three weeks to the date against San Francisco, he shows a little bit of rust, but looks very solid all around, going two and a third innings, striking out two, allowing the one earned run. Proctor, more interestingly, who hadn't pitched in a month, goes one and two thirds inning with a perfect ball, doesn't even, like, no hits, no walks, not even a strikeout. He actually induces a double play in the third inning to get out of that inning and then throws a perfect inning of his own. A vulgar goes an inning of the third, doesn't allow a run, and Reyes. I mentioned on the last podcast the oddity of how there was that stretch of five straight appearances in which he didn't allow a run in which he threw an inning and two-thirds or fewer. And, you know, I, I did even mention the, you know, the whole correlation causation thing. I don't think it was particularly because he was throwing so few innings that he was effective. I just thought it was, you know... I, I did ponder the question of maybe is his best role as, you know, a winning type of guy, but then he sort of, <laughs> he might have been listening to the podcast because he goes ahead and refutes what I was saying and throws 
uh, two and two thirds in. Uh, actually, yeah, two and thirds, two and thirds inning on the mound, striking out four. Uh, the only blip on his resume, sort of being a walk. And on the hitting side of things, it was another one of those games where it was the unsung heroes of this Cal lineup getting it done for the Bears. In the third, it was Hans Smith who got the start, who actually got the start at third instead of Quentin Selma. Uh, he smacked a solo home run. In the sixth, with the Bears trailing by a run, Jag La- John Lagatuda, who entered this game hitting 143 at the plate, hits a two-run double and gives Cal the 4-3 lead, which is the eventual final score. Now, as I mentioned, this is one of those series, I think there would be a lot to unpack, especially in the second game of that series, just because I think there's there's an argument to be, not necessarily an argument, I think it's just sort of a more, I don't want to say a fact, but because Cal, you know, really decimated Washington in that first game, I think there's reason to believe that they really locked in their spot as a tournament team in that first game, which gave new that opportunity to really experiment with the pitching. And, you know, if this was any other podcast, if this was a regular weekend series, you know, me and the crew would sort of delve into it and really talk about that, what that means in terms of the grand scope of the season. But for the first time in the history of the One Golden Moment podcast, we're talking playoffs. And so for the first time since 2015, and for the first time in the two-year Mike New era, Cal Baseball is held at your regionals. This will be the first, this team will uh, be heading to Fayetteville, Arkansas for regionals, where they will be joined, as I mentioned previously, by the host school Arkansas, Central Connecticut, and their game one opponent in TCU in a rematch of the infamous uh, Cheez-It Bowl. But, you know, before getting into the postseason, there's two things that I sort of want to uh, discuss a little bit. And the first being the actual all-conference teams that were announced at the end of the season. And in that all-conference list, the Bears were very much well represented. Uh, Andrew Vaughn, Jared Horn, Corey Lee, and surprisingly Quentin Selma all made the all-conference team, while Darren Baker was named to the all-defensive team. There were a few honorable mentions in the mix as well. Cameron Eden and Armand Sabori were named honorable mentions to the all-conference team, while Max Flower was named an honorable mention to the all-defensive team. Now, there's, there's two players in particular. I think I've said it was one, but there's two players in particular in regards to you know, these all Pac-12 teams that I want to get into a little bit. And the first being Quentin Selma, who, as I mentioned, made the all-conference team. And I think his his nomination onto this team, you know, it it wasn't necessarily a surprise that his efforts on the season were being recognized. But my thought process was, you know, just considering the way that his season went, it would have been in the form of more an honorable mention than that of an all-conference appearance. And that's not to take away from what Selma did at the plate. It was more in regards to the larger context of his season. And what I mean, not even just this season in regards to last season too, you know, it's sort of this dual surprise because, you know, on one end, if you're just looking at what he did last season, you know, last season he makes a couple starts here and there, but he went three for 29 to plate. I believe he had 34 total plate appearances. He drew a couple walks here and there. All three of those hits were singles. And so he's, you know, he's entering his sophomore year having hit like a buck oh four at the plate. And then, 
you know, heading into this season, he did begin to get more playing time, but he was never a consistent starter for this team until I believe the first time that Cal played University of San Francisco at home. And it was from that game on that he really became the regular starter for this team. And the decision to actually make him a starter really paid dividends because in beginning with that game against San Francisco, he hit... So Selma ended the season with 10 home runs. Every single home run that he hit came when he became a full-time starter. And then in addition, he hit 333 at the plate. But sort of where the surprise comes in for me is that, you know, for the first month of the season, he was essentially, you know, kind of in this purgatory between actually being the regular and between, you know, coming off the bench. And typically when I think of players that are making the all-conference team, it's someone that's sort of been the, the outright starter at his respective position from the very beginning because you also have to consider the amount of plate appearances that a batter is getting. But, you know, just to see him, to see Selma go from, you know, barely playing in his freshman year to playing very incrementally this year and then make that transition into a full-time starter was very much a pleasant surprise for this Cal team. And it really speaks to this overall theme that we've seen throughout this season of players really stepping up. And then you also have to throw in I believe so beginning with when he was a starter, typically when you would see him in the lineup, he was really hitting towards the bottom of the order, whether that be eighth or ninth. But beginning with the UCLA series, and remember, UCLA, both at the time and still currently, is and was the number one team in the country. For him to make that transition from sort of being this pseudo second leadoff man in a way to hitting behind Eden and in front of Vaughn. That's not an easy transition for any underclassman to make. Never the, nevertheless, someone who, you know, if you kind of want to look at it from a different perspective, it's kind of like he barely had a freshman year to begin with. And I know with baseball, you know, it, especially as freshmen, it's, you know, playing time is it's a little more deceiving. It's a little more hard to come by. And the stats can be deceiving just because of that lack of consistent playing time. But if you sort of look at it from that perspective, considering he only had 34 plate appearances freshman year, it's sort of like he just got like sort of this cup of coffee and then that was kind of it. And so for him to just, you know, go from barely playing his freshman year to somewhat playing this year, then make that jump from the full, then make that jump to becoming the full-time starter and not only the full-time starter, but to batting in that number two slot. You definitely have to applaud the efforts that he gave this season. Now, with the whole, you know, honorable mention thing, it's not like I'm, I, I want to sort of say, I'm not trying to undermine sort of what he said. It was more so in regards to, you know, just just my sort of train of thought in that if you are going to be on that all-conference team, it's going to be because you were that outright starter from the beginning and you had that consistent stream of playing time. Now, Selma was one of the two players that I wanted to mention in regards to the all-conference nominations. The second player that I wanted to mention, and this was more of the surprise uh, to me than Selma, if not a greater surprise, was the exclusion of Cameron Eden off the actual all-conference team and him only being given the honorable mention. Now, as opposed 
to Selma. Eden was the outright starter for this Cal team from the beginning. If you sort of go back, you remember that he had to make that transition from playing in the infield to playing in the outfield. And you know, he handled the transition really well. You know, it's he had that... You would think that just watching him in the outfield and how comfortable he was tracking down balls near the warning track, making plays on the run, you would think that he'd been playing outfield for a majority of his career. And just to list off the season that he had as opposed to last season, well, let me actually go through what he hit last season just to really illustrate the transition he made this season. So as a sophomore, Eden hit 247. had an on-base percentage of 306 and slugged 292. Now, especially considering his freshman year, he hit 315, had an on-base percentage of 361, slugged 427, or 72 rather. That's a very significant dip down. And this season, you would think that that sophomore season never happened and he sort of made this transition jump from his freshman year to his junior year. As a junior, he hit 365, had an on-base percentage of 434, a slugging percentage of 563, eight homers, 34 RBI, all of which were career highs. Oh, and not only to mention the fact that he was 19 for 23 in stolen bases, which is tied for the second most in the Pac-12 alongside teammate Darren Baker. Now, you would think that that would be enough to make the all-conference team you know there's not too many players in this conference that are batting 365 nevertheless outfielders but you know unfortunately Eden gets stuck with the honorable mention now the players that the the outfielders that did make it on the all-conference team I'm going to read them off Hunter Bishop Andrew Doshbach of Stanford Alex McGarry of Oregon State Garrett Mitchell of UCLA and I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Jack Stronach of UCLA. I really hope I'm pronouncing that right. I'm not the best with uh, the pronunciation of names. Also, Brandon Wolf of Stanford. Now, Hunter Bishop and Doshbach, those are two players that I can get. You know, Bishop, if, if not leading the nation in home runs at this point in time, he's very much up there. One of the best pure sluggers in all of college baseball. And the same can go for Doshbach. Doshbach, one of the best hitters in the Pac-12 and was an all-conference nomination last year as well. But when it comes to McGarry, Stronach, Stronach, and Wolf, that's where I start to really have some question marks. Now, I don't want to really run through all of the stats for these respective players, but in regards to just to really drive home the point in regards to batting average Eden had a higher batting average than all three of those players the same applies with on base percentage now I will give Brandon Wolf of Stanford the benefit of being a much better slugger at the plate he had 17 home runs to Eden's eight and that would result in a much higher slugging percentage but in regard to the other two Eden had a higher slugging percentage at the plate as well and it really just it's a curiosity for me because on one end, your reward, it, I, I don't, it's hard for me to sort of understand the rationale of the decision just from a numbers perspective. Now, you know, you, have to, you also have to account that the teams 
that these three men play on are Oregon State, UCLA, and Stanford. Though those are three of the best teams, not only in the conference, but in the entire country. And, you know, there's always that mentality that if you're one of the best teams, whether it be that your conference, your league, et cetera, et cetera, you want to reward them with players being on those end of the year lists. At the same time, though, you know, you have to account for the fact that Cal is now one of those teams that have really elevated themselves to the upper echelon of college baseball. And I will say that the four all conference nominations that Cal did have were the most that this program has had since 2010. So it's not like they were, you know, unjustly uh, not rewarded in regards to, you know, having players represented. You did have Vaughn, you did have Horn. You did have Lee, and as we mentioned, you did have Selma along with Baker on that all-defensive team. It just—it's—it's it's a curious decision for me as to why Eden was ultimately left off this list. One of the things that I could envision being the reason was because he did begin the season as an infielder and then made that transition uh, into the outfield. But even at that, you know, it's—if you contrast that with. Selma and how Selma wasn't even the full-time starter until late March. You know, I'm I'm just trying to really just trying to wrap my head around this. I don't want to dig uh, too far uh, into this into this rabbit hole, so to say. I think if you know if the other crew members were here with me, we would love to have a conversation on that. But now to just transition to you know the actual you know college baseball, college World Series part of this. But, you know, before really heading into a discussion of the postseason, I kind of just want to take a second to reflect on the fact that this Cal team is in the postseason in the first place. If you go back a couple months, back to the very beginning of the season, this was a team that had no seniors and still has no seniors. This was a team that lost five players to the draft, Tanner Dodson, Aaron Shortridge, Jonah Davis, Tyrus Green, and Joey Maltovich to the draft, and were projected to finish eighth in the Pac-12. Cameron Eden was coming off, you know, as I mentioned, I mentioned the numbers for him, how he had this very very much a dip from in his sophomore year. Corey Lee was coming off a sophomore year where he hit 238 and only played 36 games. Quentin Selma hit a buck 03, not a buck 04, as I mentioned previously, in 29 at bats. Uh, Jared Horn had a 6.15 ERA in 15 starts and eventually fell out of that Friday role as, you know, the very first starter. And Rahelio Reyes, in his first two seasons combined, had an ERA of 8.20 over 15, 6, 56 games. Not to mention that contributors like Grant Holman, Sam Stoutenborough, these guys are heading into the season as freshmen, and that's not to say automatically if you're a freshman, you're not going to contribute, but it's it's rather to just illustrate, you know, the youth of this Cal team and how there the, there's this expectation of all of these underclassmen to perform if this team is going to go anywhere. And if you're just taking a look at how the core of this team contributed last season and factor in all of the players they were losing, you know, an eighth place finish did make logical sense. Even if you even if you are a very firm believer in the year-to-year jump, if you're just looking at last season, you know, the only outlier in this is Andrew Vaughn, who hit 402 
hit 23 home runs and ended up winning the Golden Spikes Award. If you sort of look at this team as a whole, factor in the incoming crop, factor in the players that they were losing, an eighth play finish did make sense. And for a good chunk of this season, this team did seem poised to finish in that lower half of the conference. You know, and one of the games that, or not even one of the games, like sort of the game, that we refer to in the context of this season is the infamously bad Sacramento State game. You know, at this point, we've that that's Sacram- Sacramento State has sort of become a buzzword, so to say. And you know, after that game, this team was eleven and eleven. And I remember very distinctly after that game when I was going down to do uh, post game interviews and I was on the field. There was a an incredibly long post game speech. You know, when everybody, you know, goes out to right field and discusses the game, that, it went on for a while, a really long while. And after the speech with everyone, you know, sort of that general meeting when I believe Coach New led it, after that, there was, they divided into subgroups. I believe you had the pitching staff go into one group and you had the hitters go into another and you know I feel I didn't I didn't ask uh, what the specifics were but I did ask whether or not that they, they sort of split up and just the sort of the vibe I got for that game was that there was there's very much a level of frustration and you could sort of you know hear it in coach news voice when I was asking him questions regarding about that game I remember the the quip was we didn't hit well we didn't pitch well we didn't field well it didn't do really do anything well and then after that game, you know, if you're just looking at that game and that point of the season, you're thinking, okay, yeah, an eighth place finish finish does make sense. You do have some guys who are performing really well. There were a couple guys at that point in the season who were very much exceeding their expectations in regards to the 2018 season. But if you're just looking at that game and then going forward, you're thinking, okay, this is a team that might finish in the lower half of the Pac-12, if not, you know sixth or seventh place then they start winning and then they keep winning and over the next 28 games they proceed to go 21 and 7 to finish out the season with a record of 32 and 18 ultimately catapulting to number 25 spot in the country ultimate not and not just make regionals but to end up as a two seed in regionals, you know, going from this team that was, you know, projected to miss the postseason altogether to being a team that catapults into the top 25 and makes the two seed in regionals, that's no small feat by any stretch of the imagination. And I just think it's worth noting to take a step back for a quick second and really think about the transition that this team, you know, sort of the jump that this team has made in the middle of this season. You know, this team, you know, it is, we have to say, this team is far from perfect just because, you know, no no team in the history of any sport is ever uh, a modicum of perfection. No, no, there have been a couple of times when that lack of inexperience has sort of shown. And, you know, there is the matter of the bullpen, which I guess I'll delve into a little more in regards to our conversation with TCU. But just the, it's it just, it. I don't want to say it blows my mind because that would sort of undermine the efforts of these guys, but I think it is worth noting just taking a step back 
realizing where this team was heading into the season, realizing they where they were heading into the month of April, and how they've sort of corrected course and come correct over the last couple months, how they've really embodied this idea of playing for each other. That's one of the constant themes that I hear both with the coaching staff and the players. I think a lot of credit has to be given to New in regards to that because you don't have a culture of guys playing for each other unless, you know, that sort of thing really starts at the top. And, you know, this culture really holding the other, uh, holding your teammates accountable and holding the person next to you accountable. And that's something that really just starts at the top. And for this team to go from, you know, being snubbed last season to being projected to miss the postseason this season to making it, that's something that deserves a lot of credit. And it really, you know, in terms of looking, if we're going, you know, way forward, if we're talking about the post-Vaughn era, the po- potentially, you know, post-Horn, post-Eden, whatever this offseason may entail, it gives you a certain level of confidence in this team going forward that regardless of, you know, even if they, if there is a major loss of talent from year to year, there is still going to be that way that these guys can still figure out how to win because you only get an Andrew Vaughn. Like this, there's an argument to be made that Andrew Vaughn is the best hitter in program history, and this is a long history. And you only get, even at the top tier schools, you only get a hitter like that every, you know, well, I guess it depends on what school you're talking about because if you go to school like Arizona State, you have a laundry list of players to be able to pick. But, there is this just level of confidence that going forward, regardless of who is on that roster, this Cal team is going to be able to have that mentality of playing for each other and ultimately rack up the wins. So now on to the actual college baseball aspect of things. Heading to this first game against TCU, the one thing that I'm going to be you know, most intrigued about is the pitching matchup. Because, you know, the way that regionals work is that there are 16 total regionals, there are four teams in every regional, and in order to advance, it's a double elimination style play where, based on who you beat or who you lose to and who the other two teams, how that game goes, that it really just depends on, you know, who wins what game and who loses what game, and that really depends on, the, that really determines the matchups of subsequent games so confusing yeah (laughs) but the one thing that i'm going to be interested is because it's ultimately a battle it's ultimately the goal is to not lose two games i'm interested to see how coat like how these matchups are approached especially in game one because on one end of the spectrum you have at least in regards to cal you have jared horn 1.82 era Uh, the 15th best ERA in the country, the second best in the Pac-12, and coming off of a complete game against Arizona State. He hasn't pitched since that Arizona State game, which I believe that bumps him up to nearly two entire weeks of rest if he was to pitch on Saturday. So in terms of just, you know, setting the tone and being able to get that first win and, you know, really putting the, you know, putting that first that potential second loss, rather, on the back burner. If you want to really set the tone for the regional, Jared Horn would be someone that you, you know, if you're just concerned about winning one game, someone that you would want to go to. And on the other end of the spectrum, you also have Nick Lodolo on TCU, a projected top 10 pick in the upcoming draft. I believe one of the drafts had that I was reading had him going eighth. So he's he's generally in that range. 
and but the thing about sort of regionals is that you never really know how many games you're going to play because it very much depends uh, both on the team that you play during that first game. Well, actually, rather, it really just depends on how everything shakes out. But I would say the one thing about starting Horn during the very first game was it's sort of this idea like of using the best weapon in your arsenal too soon. Because if we're looking at it just straight up from an RPI perspective, Cal is currently ranked 30th in the country and TCU is ranked 59th. And I know that RPI doesn't say anything, but it does tell somewhat of a story. And if we're looking at teams that are in a similar RPI range to TCU, there's Oregon at 61, St. Mary's at 63, Washington at 71. So this is generally in the range, you know, again, I just really want to reiterate that RPI does not tell the full story of the team that you're going up against. But if you're taking a very, you know, if you're sort of looking further in the distance than just this one game, I think the thought process would also be that, you know, if you potentially do get matched up against Arkansas, you know, the number seven team in the country in the host school, you're going to want to have your best guy on the mound, which would be Horn. And so it's really this question of of matchups, of confidence in the other members of this pitching staff to hold TCU in check. This is a TCU team that is batting 295 as a cohort. That's the 27th, that's the 28th best mark in the entire country. And it really leads me to, you know, there's these there's a lot of scenarios that could possibly, you know, sort of go down in this first game. And with the way that this pitching staff has kind of been up in the air in regards to, you know, there's the whole opener, and then, you know, you sort of seen this opener phase out in terms of, you know, Sabori's now started a couple games, and Stoutenborough has started a couple games on his own as well, and, you know, you you've always have this constant horn, but, you know, on those Sunday games, you had Holman pitching in long relief, you had Reyes pitching in long relief, and so it's very much a question of where does this, like, you know, how does New really approach uh, the first game of this series? And if if the goal is to ultimately make it to the Super Regionals, then I would not be completely surprised if Horn is sort of reserved for a potential matchup with number seven Arkansas, because not only are you going to need your best arm on the mound, you're going to need someone that's just unfazed. And you also have to consider that if Cal does match up with Arkansas, they are going to be meeting, they're going to be in front of Arkansas's crowd in Arkansas's building. So there has to be, you know, you have to have the utmost confidence in the guy that you have on the mound. And it also wouldn't surprise me if New ultimately decides to go with Horn against TCU as well, just to really set the tone of the regionals and to avoid having your back against the wall in the second game of the regionals. I'd also, I'm also going to be looking out to see, you know, how Sabori is used, whether he's used as an opener, whether he's used as a reliever, sort of the role that he takes on as well. Because, you know, when it comes, to, as we've seen in Major League Baseball, it seems as if the postseason has increasingly become an entirely different monster as opposed to that of the regular season. Because now you're, pl- you're not just playing to make the postseason. Every game you're sort of playing for your playoff life. 
and maybe not so much in the first game, but when, once you start getting to that second game, that's when the sort of the, you know, code red really starts to come into effect. And, you know, I'll have a lot more thoughts about this once the actual game does happen. I also will be interested to see where, this is more of a side note, but uh, who decides, or who knew decides to ultimately start in left field? Because, you know, that's been a position that's sort of been up in the air as well. Do you go with Connor Mack? Do you go with Grant Nielsen? You know, it's sort of been a two-man competition between these guys for much of the year. And while they have had their respective moments, there hasn't really been someone that's really stood out uh, from the pack. And that's that's not sort of the, you know, a very big, you know, point of contention in, re- in my mind in regards to, you know, I'm going to be up in arms if one of them starts with the other, but it's just something I'm going to be, you know, monitoring because especially as I'm mentioning, if we're going forward into the future, it would be interesting to see who's going to ultimately take over that left field uh, position. The first game of this, uh, the Cal's regionals uh, starts in a couple hours. I'm excited for it just to finally be able to, you know, cover a team in the postseason as anyone that has listened to, uh, the basketball podcast and the test Cal is uh, very much far from it, or Cal basketball rather, and you know I'm excited to see how things shakes out. It's a completely different atmosphere. You know, as I mentioned previously, I'm going to have a pod, another podcast up immediately after the game, after I publish the recap for that as well, and we we shall see what happens in the in the first uh, regional game of the Mike New Era, but. Until a couple hours from now, season number two, episode number 10, One Golden Moment Podcast, Justice Del Santos, signing off.